brought to you by Prep Matters and the Self-Driven Child. When they get caught up in negative thinking, they start to feel like, I can't do any of this. I got to quit hmm. this and quit that. And this is too hard. And I'm not good at this. You know, they, they don't do well on their first round of standardized testing. And it's, well, I'm a terrible test taker. I'm never going to get into college. And so that kind of negative thinking can spiral very, very quickly. And what research shows us is that it actually takes three positive thoughts to undo one negative thought. How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. My guest is Katie Hurley. She's a child and adolescent psychotherapist, public speaker, and writer. She's the founder of Girls Can, empowerment groups for girls between ages 5 and 11. She's the author of four books, most recently, A Year of Positive Thinking for Teens. Katie Hurley covers mental health, child and adolescent development, and parenting for The Washington Post, PBS, Psychology Today, and numerous other media outlets. Thanks for joining us. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. So I, I love this book. Uh, and before I sort of gush about it, can, can you just start off, why did you write this book now? Well, it, it was actually random <laughs> that I wrote it now in a way when I was asked, when the idea was pitched to me, I thought, you know, I don't know, is this something that we need right now? And this was before COVID hit. And I, I sort of hemmed and hawed because I thought, are teenagers really going to pick up this book? I want to give them something that is meaningful to them and they will actually use because there are so many resources, as you know, that teenagers just don't use because it's not right. It doesn't feel fun or it doesn't feel engaging. So um, I really, really thought long and hard about it. And then I said, you know what? I want to do this. I want to try to put something together that will be useful, user-friendly for teenagers, hopefully give them a little lift. And then right as I signed the contract, Los Angeles went into lockdown and I wrote the book during the lockdown and the rest is kind of history. Oh, so true. It's such a book for our times, right? Between COVID and the election and social unrest and, and feelings of injustice. It's uh, uh, <laughs> This is the book that everyone needs. And, and I love your point too about um, wanting it to be something that kids could really use because I can imagine all sorts of remarkably useful texts for, for tweens and teens that feel like tomes. And, and you hand this to a kid who'd be like, you've got to be kidding me. I already feel overwhelmed enough by life and I'm supposed to look at that. Um, and it's funny, when I first looked at this, I, I admit it, I, I kind of was flipping through it when it was, it was it October and it came out. And then reading it again um, in preparation for this, for this uh, conversation with you, I thought this is just terrific. One for the, your point of, of something that kids would read, but also, um, and you're the psychiatrist, right? The, the, what, it's, what it's like of, um, of, 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 of touching on a point and coming back and touching on a point and coming back. Um, can you talk about kind of how that helps kids? And because I know your 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 work is uh, you have to be very light working with the kids that you work with. 
Yeah. And I've been working with teens for over 20 years. So, hmm. you know, a lot of what you see in this book is, is 22 plus years of, of trial and error, you know, because as anybody who has a teenager knows or works with teenagers knows, you know, you have to try different things. And they really do, even before social media, they like bite-sized chunks. If you overwhelm them, if you lecture them, if you overwhelm them with too much information, they just start to zone out. It feels overwhelming. It feels like too much. And so, you know, what you do is you present something and then you come back and visit it again and you revisit it again and you tweak it and you figure out the way that it works for them. And I think, you know, right now there's social media is, is great and also not great. And I have such a love hate relationship with it, but you know, you see all these memes and sometimes they just feel so fake, you know, it right. just feels like, oh, that's just another thing that you want me to do and pretend that my life is perfect and it's not. And, and it feels like you start to, teenagers especially start to feel resentful when they're pummeled mm. with information like that. So what I tried to do was say, hey, you know, the whole thing about positive thinking that we all get wrong is we think we're supposed to push away negative thoughts and just be positive. And the real way to use positive thinking to tap into it from a psychological perspective is to own the negative first deal with that first say i feel awful right now everything's hard i can't handle this i'm totally overwhelmed and i don't know what to do deal with that first and then find your way toward positivity so you know that's why i added all these little strategies and mantras and things that they can try and look if this one doesn't work that's all right. You know, revisit a, a few pages later, find a different one and try that. And, and let's give that one a shot for a couple of weeks and see if that's mm. the one that takes for you. I love that. One of the things that, that struck me right there in the introduction where you talk about, let me see if I can have this right. Um, um, you know, the basically positive thinking is the first step in solving our problems and learning to tackle stress well. And some the kind of cynical part of my brain says, but if my problems were were all fixed, I would then of course my thinking would be positive. I'm in the middle of this stuff that's so hard for me, and I'm supposed to be thinking positively. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit for us and, and explain, you know, kind of why we start with positive thinking? So I always say that I'm a realistic optimist, which is, you know, I, I can be optimistic and I like to think that the future is good and that I have some power and agency in creating a good future for myself. And that's mm -hmm. how I operate. And that's something I talk to my own kids about a lot and the kids I work with. Um, but, you know, that realistic part of it is not every day is great and not every week is great. And sometimes years, entire years, 2020 can be very, very difficult. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that all is lost. And so, you know, what we're talking about with positive thinking is, I mean, sure, if you had no problems, I guess you'd be positive all the time, but if you had no problems, would you even be human? You know, we all have obstacles and problems, right? Right, 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 and, right they come from out of nowhere, you know, we can't predict them a lot of the time. So, so what it means is owning that things are hard. We all have mountains to climb. Some of them are bigger than others. Um, some of us are more privileged than others. Some of us have more resources and support than others, but we all have mountains to climb and that's okay. We can proceed knowing that the world is hard and things are going to be hard at times, but also that we have the power to make positive change in our own lives. That's kind mm. of the whole thing. 
Yeah, I love. So rather than, you know, put on a happy face, everything's great, ignore the difficulty. To, to your point, lean into and acknowledge all the things that are hard, sort of an, an, an and, right? Rather than, rather than, a, rather than a but. Because you, yeah. you say in the introduction that, that negative thinking can cloud our ability to work through difficult experiences. And, and I think that's just such an important point that again, it's not an either or, that we're struggling with things that are, that are hard in, in our lives in the world. But if we can, if we can think in ways that 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 give us, you know, we don't feel helpless, we don't feel hopeless, um, can can help us move in the direction, even as even if we feel like we're walking through hell right now. Yeah, and I see that with teenagers all the time, you know. And part of it is they have so much on their plates, even pre-pandemic. They just have a lot on their plates. They have a lot that they're looking forward to and that they're trying to carve out space for. You know, the minute they step foot on a high school campus, everybody asks them where they're going to college. It's a lot of pressure. So from like day one, you know, they're supposed to be on to the next thing, which is hard. Yeah. And then they have all those things that they do, the sports that they play, the extras that they do, the grades they're trying to get, the work they're putting into their grades. There's just a lot. And so what happens is when they get caught up in negative thinking, they start to feel like, I can't do any of this. I got to quit hmm. this and quit that. And this is too hard. And I'm not good at this. You know, they, they don't do well on their first round of standardized testing. And it's, well, I'm a terrible test taker. I'm never going to get into college. And so that kind of negative thinking can spiral very, very quickly. And what research shows us is that it actually takes three positive thoughts to undo one negative thought. So you have to work hard at it. You know, you have to own that one negative thought and hit it with three positives over and over and over again to really tap into positive thinking. But when kids have that realistic optimism, that sort of positive thinking ingrained in their brains that they've practiced and practiced, they can take a deep breath and say, wow, I really blew that science test. But I can make an appointment with my teacher. I can ask my parents to help me get somebody to help me learn how to study a little bit better, learn some study strategies. I can carve out more time to study. I can mess around a little less. They start thinking about what can I do to change my trajectory? Mm. When you can tap into positive thinking, you can see through the cloud. When you're caught up in negative thinking, all you can think is this is hopeless. There's no mm. way to fix it. So, so not that, gosh, convincing myself that things are great when evidence suggests that they're not, but that things can get better when evidence suggests, my experience suggests this is, this is lousy right now. Right. And, and why is it, from a brain perspective, do you have a sense or did your research lead you to why, um, why negative thoughts are so much more powerful than positive ones? Because what happens in our brains when we're, well, and the teenage brain is special, we know this. So mm -hmm. one of the biggest problems with the teenage brain is that the amygdala, which is responsible for all the big feelings, is in overdrive. But the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for logic and reasoning and saying, hey, cool it, I can get through this, I can fix this, I can figure this out, I can take these steps, is nowhere near fully developed. So that's not fully developed until about age 25 for the average person. So you have all these big emotions. But it's getting them, better all the time. Don't panic parents. It's getting better day yeah, by day. It's getting better and better, <laughs> but it's learning, right? Yeah. But you have all these big emotions and a lot of them right now, stress and anxiety based because we do put a ton of pressure on these teenagers you know, figure out your future. Who are you going to be? What do you want to be? I don't know anyone other than my husband who knew really what they wanted to be at age 14. I, he's literally the only person I've ever met who knew exactly where he was going to end up. 
and, like everybody and, and just else? and just for the enjoyment of listeners who who don't know, your husband's a rock and roller, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. So for all the parents, all the parents like, shouldn't you be studying your homework? Put down that guitar. No, maybe pick up not. That guitar. Yeah. <laughs> pick up that guitar. I love uh, that. Places. <laughs> I love it. But, you know, so we, so their brains are in this, they're in this mismatched state, and it's constantly growing. Like you say, it's getting better every day. It's starting to even out a little, little by little. But because they're not there yet, what happens is the amygdala is in overdrive and the negative thoughts and the anxious thoughts just spiral really quickly. And because they have all this stress and stress and pressure on their backs, you know, they just start to think about what can go wrong instead of what might go right. Hmm. And one of the things that's so fun, uh, one of the, the um, points in your book is we know that um, We've talked, you know, a million books written about resilience. And of course, resilience is the ability really to return to a former state. So you can be, things can be going great and then you get knocked low and then the ability to get back up and, and come back. And, and so ultimately it's the, our scrapes and our challenges and our failures that are the source or the nest, or at least a necessary component of developing that resilience that that parents so want their kids to have. I love that quote by Tina uh, Tina Fey, who's of course wonderful in every possible way. That when you say, "Don't fear failure," you've got to experience it to know you can survive it. That's right. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've had some spectacular failures <laughs> along the the path of my career. But I've also honed my skills and figured mm -hmm. out where I needed and wanted to be. And, you know, we learn. Yeah, we could, we could, it'd be, it would be fun to do a, um, a, a, you know, blow by blow, you know, my screw up, you know, we'll see if we can one up and another in, 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 in lifetime failures, but that might be a, that might be for a different podcast. So yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> um, now you do tell us about, you do a lot of work with girls and why, I think people may not know that for all the things that could be challenging for kids and teens generally, it can be even more so for girls. And I think this is important. Can you sort of talk us through why that is? Um, what are some of the vulnerabilities and what are the, some of the things, tools that are even more important for girls? Well, you know, I would love to say that in 2020, things have shifted remarkably and girls are still getting, you know, our girls are starting to get, you know, equal time. Um, but we know that's not true. So, you know, we research shows that boys out talk girls in the classroom, even though girls outperform boys in the classroom. And that's been consistent since the 1930s. Nobody knows that. Everybody thinks, you know, oh, boys have always outperformed girls. That's absolutely not accurate. It's just that they talk more. Um, they're more willing to raise their hands, you know, and answer. May, may, I always... may, may I jump in? I don't want to interrupt me and the boy, but my, 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 the, the wise guy in me goes, so girls outthink boys, but but boys outtalk girls? <laughs> right. My wife would probably be nodding if she were listening. <laughs> Just a little bit. Um, I always tell the story, I this kid I worked with for a while, his teacher emailed me in desperation. Could you just tell him to please stop raising his hand if he doesn't know the answer? Because it's like he constantly has the his hand in the air and then I call him and he never actually has an answer. And I said to him one day, so how come you do that? How come you always have your hand in the air if you don't actually even know the answer to the question. I mean, the teacher hasn't even finished asking the question, I understand, and your hand's in the air. And he said, well, I'm pretty sure I'll come up with something by the time I get called on. <laughs> and it's that's a confidence that boys are raised with still, that girls aren't necessarily raised with. We know that women 
you know, wait until they're sure they're a hundred percent qualified for a job before they submit their resume where men are like, eh, I can do this. And they send it in, you know, even if they have no skills in the area. So, you know, there's a certain confidence that boys continue to be raised with the girls aren't. But we also, you know, know that perfectionism is something that's on the rise right now. It's very much rooted in anxiety. And we're starting to see it in uh, young boys as well. Mm -hmm. But we see this a lot in girls. And this is something that needs to be addressed because girls have been getting the message recently that, you know, look, you can be anything. You can do anything you want to do. You can have it all, but you better be the best one. You better be better than every other girl that you come across. And so this mm. generation of girls, they're highly competitive with one another. They're not getting the message to lift each other up. You know, if we lift each other up, we all rise a little bit higher, right? The message they're getting is step on top of each other, get to the top faster, be the best one, because that's how you get to be Kamala Harris, which is inaccurate. That's not what she would say. Um, she would thank all the people who went before her and helped her along her path. But the message girls keep receiving is you better be perfect. You better be the best at everything. So that is really contributing to a rise in anxiety and stress among girls. And so I run these girls groups primarily to help them learn to support one another, to talk through what's hard. It's okay to say that I feel stressed out. I feel like my parents expect me to be the best at everything. I feel like I'm never allowed to miss a shot in a soccer game or, you know, get a B for a grade, like I, I feel like everything's really, really hard. And they do say those things. Once we sort of unravel the, hey, we're all in this group together. Like no one here competes. There's no winning this girl's group. We're all here to support each other. Once we get to that place in the group, they really start to talk about the pressures they feel and how hard it is and how they would rather just be able to make good friends, but they feel like they're always a little bit against their friends. Mm, that's a hard place to be. It's tough. You know, and one of the things that, that we know, um, part of the things, one, another thing that also makes girls more vulnerable to anxiety uh, at an earlier age than boys is simply that they have more mature brains. They do. Because <laughs> yeah. if you go back the, to, the, to the prefrontal cortex and the, and, the, and the relatively late maturation, of course, it's probably three years earlier for girls and women than it is for boys, and, and which is great in terms of being on top of kind of everything, except it also leads them to rumination, right? And so they can kind of literally make themselves crazy or figuratively make themselves crazy. And so, so it seems to me that such a, a, um, an important thread through your book is, uh, frankly, mindfulness of, of tools that can break that cycle. Because you said before, negative thinking can spiral and then it's not just this, you know, f squabble with a friend or a test that went poorly or I, I didn't make that header. All of a sudden, everything's a disaster. And um, we just want to, we want to staunch the, the bleeding. We want to limit the suffering to, to just where it is. Right. And I mm. find over and over again, when I'm working directly with um, girls and boys, but but a lot of teen girls is that, you know, at first they tend to be resistant to trying different mindfulness techniques because they feel hmm. like they have so much on their plates. And it's like, this is not something I have time for. You know, <laughs> it, it doesn't fit in. But when I teach them just simple grounding techniques, like, yeah. hey, when that panic starts to take over and you start to feel like everything is really hard, put your feet on the ground, put your feet on the ground, stand up, take a deep breath, and just start shouting out, what can you see? What can you hear? What can you feel? Start saying those things. You, you will ground yourself. You'll calm down your central nervous system. And then all of a sudden, it, your brain sort of opens up and things feel 
like they're not so insurmountable. Mm-hmm. It's funny, you know, I, I have probably dozens of parenting books scattered across my kitchen table, dining room table throughout my house. Uh, and this one, I left your book when, it, when, it, when we got it in October and it sort of left in the middle of the kitchen table. And my daughter picked it up, my daughter who's a junior in high school. And most things she's like, ah, you know, and this one she sort of flipped through and she's like, I like that. You know, these are some good ideas, basically. And, and, and so often parents feel kind of helpless when they see their kids suffering that, that, you know, they want, we all as parents want so desperately to help our kids, but sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it makes it even, even it makes things worse. Um, We don't know what to say. And what I love about this book is it is such a accessible, um, easy, light way for, for kids to pick it up. And if you feel like it might be too much to sort of, here, you should read this, right? Um, should be in such a helpful word, um, you know, to sort of just buy it and leave it casually where, you, where a kid might stumble into it and let his or her own curiosity uh, take them into the book. Yeah. And that was, I love that story about your daughter, because that was kind of my hope. I mean, what I find over and over again is just kids need the emotional space from their pet. Like we want to be able to help them with everything, but sometimes they need the space. They need the buffer zone. You know, their first reactions are usually not great when we come in with our good ideas um, for how they can fix their lives. And usually we get the worst reaction first. So, you know, just leaving it out, letting them come to it when they get a chance, letting them flip through and then come back to you and say, oh yeah, this was kind of cool. That's, it's, it just gives them this emotional safety to work through it on their own and not feel like they're being told this is one more thing they have to do because you think it sounds good. Hmm. <laughs> I'm going to pivot for a moment. And I, there's something I think I picked up on, but I'm not a great student of literature. Uh, and so I don't know if this is just my scene and or, and, or if this is true, whether it was something that you kind of did intentionally. Um, it feels to me like there's kind of this in and out and tug and pull between kind of different ideas at sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. So, so for example, there are a whole bunch of things about helping others and how that can help you. And then other things about the others helping you of finding your crew and who's on your team, right? And you can kind of back and forth, um, focusing on the now, the kind of mindfulness stuff we talked about versus goal setting that can get you excited and, and help you ideally find paths to get out of where you are, the, you know, physical versus mental. I mean, was, was that something that was purposeful or did that just kind of emanate out of the broad experience you have working with so many teens? It was purposeful because- Oh, when I yay. Finally, yes, yay. <laughs> I got a B plus <laughs> on my paper. I'm so happy. Yeah, you do. <laughs> Maybe even an A minus. Oh, you're um, so Yeah, kind. when I sat down to write it, I tried to really, um, and I don't know about your writing process. I know you write a lot too, but I'm, I'm sticky notes all over the walls. And uh-huh. So, you know, when I was categorizing, I was thinking to myself, what are the different sort of pillars that adolescents need for their best emotional health and let's start there and let's figure it out because we do need balance and we need a little bit of everything and you know um sometimes kids feel extraordinarily pressured by this idea of goal setting but if they learn to do it in a way that works for them if they you know envision climbing a ladder you know with small rungs um they can figure out how to take those tiny steps toward their larger goal so I was trying to do it in a purposeful way where they could kind of bounce Hmm. around and have a little bit of everything 
so that it's not too overwhelming. Sometimes, and even for me, when I pick up a book, if it's, you know, this is how you do goal setting and this is how you do this and this is how you do that. I, I'm like, all right, I'm done. it's too much for me. You know, I'm, yeah. you're, you're throwing too many things at me all at once and I can't handle it. So I wanted to pepper things throughout so that, you know, they had a, a moment to breathe and to take in what works for them. Well, I think it's, I think it's just great in that way that the, you know, the reasons that aphorisms, these short statements of wisdom have, have endured through hundreds of years because they work. Uh, you know, your point about being, being a, a sticky note writer, I can so see kids taking this book and sticking, sticky notifying it. What would the language be for that? You know, and, and, and pulling out their favorite things and taking a sticky note and just, you know, all over the walls or their bathroom mirror or whatever. Um, because as you said, you know, they're, they're going to some things like, yeah, that, that one's not for me, but gosh, that's so good. Um, and really choosing what for them are the best moments. Uh, I, 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 well, I'm waiting to see what my daughter does with it because she's an artistic kid. So um, I'll, I'll put the book back in her room or the kitchen table again. So <laughs> see what she does. Um, let me ask you, um, what particular advice do you, I'm going to pivot again. What particular advice do you have for teens who are having a, a really tough time? Because I know kind of in many ways, all your kids are, but for structural reasons, right? Because we all have our challenges, but for, for, for families who have kids who are dealing with, you know, racism or, or poverty or, you know, LGBTQ teens, neurodiverse teens, you know, teens are international students, immigrants, undocumented, all that kind of stuff, who have all the usual problems, all the usual challenges of, of figuring out, you know, who they are and where they fit in this world. And then, you know, and then extra. Right. So, and I work with a lot of LGBTQ uh, teens. And so we talk about this a lot, but I find myself saying over and over again, it just takes one. Every kid who's facing all of these sort of structural, um, you know, mountains that other kids are not facing, they need one positive mentor in their lives. And it can be a coach, it can be a teacher, it can be a family member, it can be a friend, a cousin, it can be anybody. They just need one person who can support them because the most important part of adolescence, though we task them with independence, responsibility, and moving away, they really need anchors. They need people who are there to listen to them, support them, and just show them this sort of unconditional support no matter what so that they know they have that person they can go to whether they've totally messed up and they need to figure out how to undo what they've done or whether they're just struggling they're up against something that's so hard and so difficult so you know for me what i find myself telling these kids a lot is just they need that one positive person that they can check in with regularly a, mm. a mentor can be a really powerful um, addition to a, a teen's life hmm. someone who cares about them in addition to parents yes yeah. You know, and where my where my thinking goes to that, because, you know, in, in the book that Bill and I wrote so much about school, you know, school, school, school is where so much of parent, parental angst and and adolescent suffering comes from that. I'm sure I'm, I know you see this, that that so often parents will choose to take away things until grades get, you know, come together or kids step up or become more responsible. And I, I had never thought about this until you just shared that, that the reason kids may love art class or shop class or, you know, you know, model UN after school or soccer, even though they're the worst kid on the team and never going to get a college scholarship 
is that there may be that important anchor, that mentor, that person who also sees them and appreciates them for who they are is there. And if you take that away, <laughs> thinking that somehow the kid is then going to have more positive thinking and be more motivated to straighten up what isn't going well in their classes seems like um, probably not a good plan. Right. I feel like, you know, we always hear the negative stories because those, I don't know, are better sound bites or something. And those are the mm. stories that tend to get shared. But um, teachers and coaches, they, they can just be magic, you know. And like you say, it doesn't matter if a kid is particularly athletic or not or what. Um, you know, I've been, you know, riding out this pandemic predominantly in Connecticut. And my son here has been able to play tennis one on one with a coach. And he loves tennis. I mean, I, I don't think he's, he's going on to play in any great capacity. He loves it. It's fun. Um, it's healthy for him, obviously. But, you know, I said to my husband just the other day when we were out for a run, the most important part of this experience that he has with his coach, Andrew, every single week, twice a week is hmm. they talk about the Celtics. They talk about <laughs> football. They talk about, he listens to him rattle off all the statistics he's got in his yeah. brain. They talk about so much while they're hitting those tennis balls. And this is a person for him that if he needed someone else to talk to, he can go to that person and just talk to him. And parents say to me all the time, you know, why is it that our kids are like, why do they tell you absolutely everything? And they tell me absolutely nothing. And my, you know, first response is always because I'm not their mom. I'm mm -hmm. not. I'm someone who just my whole job is to listen without judgment and, mm -hmm. you know, to provide some guidance and help. Yes. But predominantly, I listen without judgment. And I'm here for them and I have their back no matter what they're doing. I have their back and teens need that. Oh, and they're lucky to have you. And if I, I, I wanted to take a moment that think about your son and the tennis coach, because one of the things that we know is that it's easier for you and for your son's tennis coach to listen and be not judgmental and say, I'm here to help and nothing more is if you don't feel, or use your son's tennis coach, if he doesn't feel pressure, she doesn't feel pressure to get your kid to Wimbledon, right? Because then the energy changes completely. And I think about this. So my wife's a school teacher and I went to a tiny, 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 tiny public high school in rural Connecticut. And there were a hundred people in my graduating class. And I don't know, I had like 14 kids or 17 kids in an English class or math class. And just thinking about how, how hard it is, how much harder it is today, I think for teachers and coaches and everyone else to, to play that role in helping kids develop if they feel like their job is to help every kid or push every kid to get an A or to be, you know, Olympic bound or whatever, because then they become stressed and can't listen and do, and do all the things that we want mentors to do, as opposed to how do I get my kid to the apex of performance? Absolutely. And that has something that is something that has worried me for years now, because I've watched it, you know, and you know, I know, you know, in your job mm -hmm. as well, it's, it comes from a good place, you know, parents are wanting to lift their kids up and, and carve out the best future for them that they can. But in this process of all the doing and hovering and being there and being on campus all the time and, you know, intervening with every single little thing, they chip away at the freedom of the teacher and the student to have that relationship and really work together. I mean, I also went to a very small school in Connecticut, you mm -hmm. know, 12 people, people in a class, the same, same thing. And I think back on my relationships with my teachers and 
you know, I can still list them off, the ones that really just helped me, helped me figure out who I was and where I wanted to go. And when I had a hard time, which one did I pop in on to talk to on a bad day? Um, these relationships are just super important. They're mm. supportive for the kids. Yes, they're there to learn, but they're there to grow. And we have forgotten that. We have lost sight of the fact that school is also growing and maturing. And a large part of that is being able to communicate with someone outside mm. your family and develop that kind of a special, you know, relationship that's going to last possibly a lifetime. Well, it's interesting. There's a, one of the points that Bill and I tend to share is that from our perspective, and I say this is a test prep guy, right? That the most important outcome of high school and adolescence is not where you go to college. I just lost a bunch of clients. I know, um, but developing the brain that you're going to carry into adulthood. So one that's resilient, one that can handle stress, one that's capable of positive thinking. Um, and I think about, you know, your, your point about the, those, those connections. When I was, um, I had a difficult childhood. Um, my father was an alcoholic, uh, created a bunch of mental health challenges for my mom. Uh, this, you know, cumulative stress of which landed me in a pediatric psychiatric hospital for about three months of seventh grade. And it was hard, but I was also sort of terrified in a kind of John Hughes movie sort of way of coming back to seventh grade after, you know, being in the quote unquote loony bin and what would kids say. But also I was so worried about what would my teachers think? Because I'd always been this great student and they'd be like, Mr. Johnson, where's the homework for the last three months? And I walked into, I can remember almost none of my teacher's names, but I will never forget Mrs. Greenberg, who was my math teacher. And I sort of put my little head in the door, like waiting to get a math book thrown at my head. And she looked up from her desk, grading, grading tests, and sat back and her face got as wide, she smiled as wide as a person could smile. And she just said, Ned, how are you? And it was like, oh, and you talk about an anchor. I thought, well, there's at least one person here. There's at least one person, one island of, of okay, this is all right, in what might otherwise be a really stressful day. Um, you know, and, and it's certainly the work that, you know, was able to bounce back from a really hard few years, um, and end up being, you know, successful in ways that are meaningful to me and happy in ways that are meaningful to me. Um, and you know, this better than anyone, but I, I, I think it's so helpful for families to know who are listening to this. If you have kids who are struggling, right, that things can and do get better and, we don't end up with positive thinking by first generating better outcomes. We oftentimes get those better outcomes by helping people change their thinking. And oftentimes, you know, frankly, not only should every, not only should every teen or kid be given the opportunity to read this, but I think for all of us as parents, there's so much in here like, gosh, that's so true because we, we love our kids, but we can get crazy and think, but, but if only that is a T score or higher. And, uh, um, for sure, for for sure. <laughs> it's, you know, and I just think um, I find myself saying all the time right now, because everybody's very worried about grades and, and grades are falling for a lot of kids right now. But there's so much else that they're learning and they're mm -hmm. enduring so much right now. And mm -hmm. they're figuring out how to ask for help, which is a skill that everybody needs for the rest of their lives. And we don't always teach it, right? Because a lot of teens today feel like help is bad. Help means I'm failing. Help means I can't do it on my own. It means I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I didn't study hard enough. Um, that message has been strong in the last decade. And so right now we have this opportunity to say, you know what, we all need help. And yeah. 
this is a good time to practice asking for it. So what? So your grade's a little low. Okay, what are you going to do about it? Who can help you? Who can you reach out to? And I think too, you know, I'm a parent, so I get it. I have a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. And I, I know, you know, I want to know everything too. I mean, there's a, we want to know everything because we want to know that our kids are okay. Mm-hmm. We want to know that they're happy, you know. But um, my daughter texts my brother constantly constantly and i don't know what they talk about there's a lot of laughter when she's reading his responses um i have no idea what goes on i resist the urge to ever look because it's not for me to know it's for her to tell me when she wants to but you know let those relationships happen encourage them whether it's a you know an uncle or a teacher or whoever it is please encourage those relationships because they get so much out of life by having other positive adults in their lives that are not their parents, who they can vent hmm. to and joke with and talk to. And it just gives them hope. And it's just so important. I had a, I had a client years ago who was herself a therapist and, but you know, go test prep stuff, which is the most dreary, dreary, dreary way to connect with kids. But, but this is, this is what I got. And, um, but I really liked this boy and he was, you know, he was a complicated kid. And somewhere through the process, his mom said, he said, you won't understand this. I was 24 at the time. You won't understand this until you have children of your own. But how helpful it is to have concerned adults who you and your kid can trust. And exactly said, Katie, just just let that relationship be what it is and know that this is another caring adult who also has your kid's best interest at heart. Mm. Yeah. Well, let me take a couple more minutes. I'd love to hear if you if there are a few favorites that you would like, a few favorite days that you'd like to share. And I have a few that I would share. One of my one of my favorite ones was doing nothing, right? And the power. That's of, one of my favorites too. Was it really? Oh my gosh, I stole it. I'm a bad person, you know. And for people, for people who okay. who don't uh, who who are curious, like seriously doing nothing, make a note and then Google the default mode network. And specifically, there's an article called Rest is Not Idleness by Mary Helen Imardino Yang. You don't have to Google the name because it's a lot of letters, but you'll, rest is not idleness. And, it, and, and to your point you made before, Katie, about how kids are just so everything, sports and school and college and and, 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 and that cognitive load where the doing nothing, well, you told, you explained why, why, why for people, why is doing nothing so important, particularly for adolescents? It's restoration. I mean, these kids don't ever get a break. And so doing nothing is just, this is how we restore ourselves. It's how we hit the reset. Um, Hmm. And I think, you know, they're so conditioned to believe and parents are conditioned to believe that we have to be, well, if you're doing nothing, you should be reading a book. It's like, no, you could stare out the window for seven hours and that's all right. If that's what you need to do (laughs) to just hit the reset and think, and, you know, thinking is important. Um, you know, one of my favorite days, and I can't remember which one it is, but one of my favorite is, and I'm paraphrasing, but Gloria Steinem is, you know, daydreaming is planning. So yes. we've lost touch with daydreaming. Yes. Right? Yes. We don't want yes. our kids to daydream because we think they should be actionable. They should be doing actions that get to their goal of going to Yale. I, you know, but daydreaming is planning. And so doing nothing is also a form of planning. It's okay to just lay around for a day and see what becomes of it. I mean, most often kids find some spark of creativity, even the ones who insist they're not at all creative or artsy, will find some spark of creativity when they have a day of nothing. Hmm. That's just, that's when our brains go to a, a relaxed 
restorative state. And that's when we can say to ourselves like, oh, what do I want to do with this? Oh, I want to bake a cake. I'm going to learn how to bake a cake. I don't know how to do fondant. Let's learn that. I mean, Kids come up with all kinds of things when they mm, finally have fondant. Mm. You, you know, <laughs> this could be mutually beneficial. People have your kid become an excellent baker. Um, you know, and the, the other thing, of course, in addition to curiosity, is it's that downtime, that daydream, and that reflection when we develop, or kids and all of us develop both a sense of empathy and a coherent sense of themselves and goodness, what could be more important than coming out of adolescence with it, with a, the sense of kind of who you are, as opposed to, I am an excellent hoop jumper, right? I'm excellent at jumping through other people's hoops, but for reasons that I really don't understand, we want, you know, to, to have lives that are, to, that are meaningful and purposeful. We have to understand what, what mean, what, what's important to us, what gives us meaning. So, um, that was so. I, I mean, do you have another one before I steal? <laughs> I want to steal your favorite list. Um, well, I have a couple. So one yeah. that I really like, and I talk to teens about this all the time, is and I titled it "A Work in Progress." Um, <sighs> we're all a work in progress. You know, nobody's done. Nobody's fully cooked until they're you know at the end. So if you're fully okay. cooked, you might as well be six feet under, right? I mean, I you know, might as well right? just you know. So so keep learning, and even. The process of mindfulness and positive thinking, it takes practice and dedication. All of this takes practice and it takes, you know, a few steps backward and a few failures along the way. And that's okay. But, you know, progress makes proficient. We're not looking for perfect. We're looking for growth and change. And I think that's an important message for teens right now, probably even more than ever. It's just progress. That's all you're trying to make, growth and change. Just find little tiny bits of progress. Um, you know, and another one I actually put on my daughter's birthday very purposefully um, because the book is arranged by date, um, but that was believe, never stop believing in the things that give you hope. And the mm. reason for that is she's, I always joke that she's like part Christmas elf or something, but she was <laughs> such, she, she, all those little bells. <laughs> yeah, she just, she believes in like kindness and happiness and goodness and doing for others and doing those, she's constantly just making little cards for people and just baking things for people. And it's, it's all self-motivated. It's if I put out kindness into the world, this is my belief system. I believe that putting out kindness into the world will make the world a little bit of a better place. And that's what I can do to play my part. And so, you know, what, whatever you believe in, whatever you believe your purpose is, just go for it. Keep believing in it. You know, don't let people tell you that it's wrong or that you're not, you know, working towards an actionable goal or something. Just, just keep doing it because you know what? You're on to something. Hmm. You know, and for all the parents that go, oh, that's great, but that's Pollyannish. I was just looking at the book, The Paradox of Power, that talks about it's the people who are most empathetic long-term and The Power of Nice as well, both books, um, that it's the people who are the most empathetic who get better at understanding other people and who give more, who long-term win. So uh, your daughter's got a great future in front of her. <laughs> My last two favorite ones are, are um, to a happy place and thinking about the happy place. During the sort of tumult of my teenage years, I would always go back to thinking about my grandparents who never moved. We moved several times. And I have this um, sort of, uh, uh, oh, you talk about census too. I have this um, just total, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, uh, um, 
completely connected to the sense of raisin toast, slightly burned raisin toast, because I, my family was not very well to do. So that was kind of a luxury, but it was something my grandparents always had. And so when I was there typically for Christmas, there, I would, we'd have, we have cream of wheat and raisin toast. And even now the smell of it just, just kind of does one of these things. And so um, when kids are in situations that are hard, when they're not feeling safe or they're not feeling happy, that idea that there's a place you can return to in your mind and just as an escape, something other than your phone, right, to, to escape. Yeah. Um, and then the last one is that I know me best, which, well, actually, can you talk about that? I just thought that's so good. Well, you know, and this actually came from just my own experience in a lot of ways, because... Uh, when I was in high school and I was, you know, I talk about in the beginning of the book, how I kind of walked around with like this giant lump in my throat for years. Mm. And like, I never felt like things were quite right. And I, and in those days, people didn't really talk about anxiety. So I, I didn't know that what I was experiencing was anxiety. And certainly my parents didn't know either. So it was mm. just like, just, you know, get, you can do it, keep working, you'll be fine. Um, you know, but I always sensed that there was something that was like, this is not, this is more than like, I'm having a hard day. Like there's something wrong. And when I got mm. to college and started learning about psychology was when I was like, huh. And then I went to the counseling center and they were like, oh, you, poor you. You've been, this is a long time that you haven't known how to do this. And that's when I started learning how to <sighs> shift my thinking and, and what I could do to use positive thinking and, and you know, de-stress myself a little bit. But um, and so I, I wrote that remembering that version of myself who was sort of swimming, bobbing up and down, wanting a life ring and not really getting quite the right one that would help mm. me through that stormy sea for a long time. And, you know, we all know ourselves best when we stop, when we have the idle time, we can stop and think about who we are and what our needs are. We're conditioned to be afraid to share those things. Um, especially mm -hmm. in this time of social media perfection where everybody looks shiny and, and amazing on social media and where, you know, listeners don't know this, but I'm a, I'm a devilish, devilishly handsome, handsome man. It's, it's not he a is. voice. You should look him up on Instagram. Everything looks so good on the outside looking in. And so then we become afraid to share yeah. who, you know, who we really are and, and we know ourselves and we need to get to know ourselves and be in touch with ourselves and say, this is who I am and this is where I want to go. And these are the steps I'm going to take to get there. I mean, when I first told my mom, I think I want to be a therapist so that I can help people. She was like, how about a nurse? Uh, <laughs> I was like, no, I think it's going to be a therapist. And she was we like, need well, we need both. We need both, you know? but, but, oh my gosh. <laughs> because it just, it was like, she didn't know, you know, um, all these years later, of course she's proud and, and, you know, was supportive every step of the way, but it's like, I had to figure out some things on my own. And because I was able to say, all right, I know me, I can do this. I can, I can follow my own goals. Um, you know, we get there. Well, I'm sorry for the Atlas and you, but uh, talk about silver linings. Um, I mean, it's clear why you're so effective with folks. It's just, I love the warmth. I'm gonna, I'm gonna end, if I may, with a quote, not from your book, but from William James, who you, of course, know better than do I, uh, who's one of my favorite thinkers in all of psychology. For people who don't know, he founded the Department of Psychology at Harvard, also brother to William James and Alice James. So that must've been a fun family dinner they had all the while. Um, but he has two of my favorite quotes that he said, our experience 
consists of that which we choose to attend to, to pay attention to, right? And if you can change your mind, you can change your life. And those those immediately popped to my head when I was reading the, the reading your book, Katie. That um, that your book is such a, a kind, thoughtful, gentle, easy way to help just ever so subtly but profoundly help teens change a bit or at least mix up what it is they're paying attention to so they can pay attention to things that are hard and difficult and important because that is important we don't turn our backs on them but also mix it up with 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 other ways of thinking that gently subtly move us towards a more positive way of thinking and doing that we can then of course change our lives that's right that's i, I what i love about those quotes is that's early mindfulness you know it's yeah. like that's it. That's the seeds right there. And and here we are now. Uh, well, Katie Hurley, what a joy to have you. And I'm so grateful for your writing this book. I have bought multiple copies. By the way, people are always trying to figure out like, what are great graduation gifts? This should be on the short list of everyone's going off to college. And it's not the only thing, but boy, what a nice thing to just tuck in there because um, it's so, so good. Thank you so much. I appreciate your support and kind words. Thanks a million, Katie. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Bye.